friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you once again for listening and being part of our conversations. As our listeners know, we always have Father Roger Landry give us the benefit of a beautiful homily at the end of the show to prepare us for the following Sunday for Holy Week. We've asked Father to join us to talk about the Easter Vigil, preparing for Easter, and also something that's uppermost in all of our minds, the suffering of the people of Ukraine, both those who are there and those who have had to flee their country. But before that, I'm delighted to have my TCA colleagues, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire, with me. We're thrilled to welcome Attorney General Bill Barr to the show today to discuss his new memoir, Out Right Now. It's called One Damn Thing After Another. Welcome to the show, Mr. Barr. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm so grateful you wrote the book, and really for two reasons. First, that you bring clarity to some very complicated occurrences, especially in D.C. in the last two years of the last administration. And we have had, we've been bombarded with so many different accounts, uh, always contradictory. So thank you for doing that. That was very sure. helpful. And secondly, it is really wonderful to learn um, really in-depth about the life of a real public servant who really brings his whole heart and his conscience to his very important job. And it's tremendously reassuring for me, and I know for all your readers, to know that people like you actually exist and that they hold positions of power. And I really hope that they are numerous and you're not the only one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So that was wonderful. So, Mr. Barr, before we get into some things that we'd like to ask you about, there's so much beautiful material in your book, um, One Damn Thing After Another. It's a great title, and um, we don't normally get to swear on the show, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> we were looking forward to it. Um, but I wanted to ask you to start, could you name for us what you think is your most important accomplishment in, in your last stint as Attorney General, or maybe your top two? Um, I went into the office uh, under Trump, accepted the position, knowing it'd be very hard. Um, and potentially uh, we were moving toward a crisis with the Russiagate matter, which was uh, a false narrative that was being used to hobble the administration and potentially even drive him from office unfairly. And you know the media had was heavily vested in it and and the people who were uh, very hostile to trump so i felt that the that he wasn't getting his due as president he was a duly elected president he deserved the opportunity to have an administration and so dealing with that in the face of uh really what was a lynch mob um you know was difficult but i felt we put that behind us and I would say the the other aspect of it was um, trying to depoliticize the uh, the department, make decisions based on the merits, uh, not allow the department to be used as a political weapon on, by either side, and and that frequently um, got the Democrats mad. But it but sometimes the president was frustrated also because. Uh, you know, he would have benefited politically if the department had uh, brought certain actions. But I felt that I would only do things that were sufficiently supported by the law and facts and only do them when 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 things were ready to do uh, from that standpoint. So I, I think uh, just generally keeping things on an even keel, administering justice fairly uh, during a very hyperpartisan time. Um, is what I'm proudest of. 
Well, we all really enjoyed reading your book. You're such a colorful storyteller. And we did all love the title of the book, One Damn Thing After Another. Uh, Can you explain to us why you picked that title? Well, um, attorneys general, uh, it's sort of an inside joke among attorneys general. It goes back to when Ronald Reagan picked William French Smith to be his attorney general. He was a distinguished lawyer in Los Angeles, and and he went to the attorney general who had served under President Ford, who was Ed Levy, uh, and asked him uh, about the job. And and Ed Levy was an academic. He he puffed a pipe. He had a bow tie and tweeds and stuff. He'd been the head of the University of Chicago. And William French Smith said to Ed Levy, could you tell me about the position of attorney general? And he was expecting a long lecture uh, about the rule of law and the Constitution and so forth. And Ed Levy puffed on his pipe and said, it's one damn thing after another. <laughs> so from then on, attorneys general have always commented to each other that it's one damn thing after another. And in my case, it certainly was. I, you know, it was a it was a difficult time uh, to serve as attorney attorney general, both because of some of the chaos within the administration, uh, but also principally because of the the savage, unrelenting attacks from outside. Mr. Barr, you have a very insightful analysis, or I would I would call it a takedown of progressivism in your book. And I know that you sort of premiered these ideas first in a, in the speech that you gave for Notre Dame, which went viral. And you really talk about the way progressivism has impacted the media. In fact, you say in your book uh, that the media has become the progressive movement's propaganda arm. Can you elaborate for our listeners as to why you see this as such a threat to our democracy? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, democracy is all about trying to reach a collective decision uh, with our fellow citizens. And that requires uh, a a public discourse uh, in the public square. And, you know, the framers believe that... um, the more information and the and the more and the greater the multiplicity of voices, the better that process would be. That truth would eventually uh, win out uh, through that discourse, and they wanted as many voices as possible. And um, what we have today, really, is the press has become not only economically more. Uh, consolidated, but also monolithic in its in its viewpoint. So we got more concentration of media. You know, when the framers were writing the Constitution, small towns like Troy, New York, or Utica, or places like that would have twelve newspapers in town. I mean, there were a lot of diversity of viewpoints. Uh, the other thing that's happened, in addition to consolidation, uh, is uh, I think that journalists now view themselves not many journalists. In fact, most journalists nowadays, especially some of the younger ones, don't really view themselves as in the business of dispassionately reporting the truth, facts, objectively true facts. What they what they view themselves as as agents of change, that they are part of the revolution, that they are part of the progressive movement to change uh, society and to tear down the existing institutions and fundamental and, and traditional beliefs and so forth to pave the way for some, you know, secular heaven uh, that man is going to make here on earth. And so politics is now. So what's what's important is, isn't really the real facts. What's important is a narrative, and the and the the word narrative suggests there is no objective truth, or that or that we can't really learn it. And and so the idea is well, everyone has their own narrative. Everyone sort of sees things differently, and therefore my narrative is as good as your narrative. And they basically try to construct a narrative and fit the facts into the message they want to deliver. And so they've become effectively uh, a partisan player on the field that are that are really part of the uh, progressive uh, Democratic Party movement. Mr. Barr, um, in your in, in 
In the introduction to part four of One Damn Thing After Another, you, you write very beautifully about how you understand um, the, the, the great value of a liberal democracy and, and the fact that the government exists to preserve the individual freedoms of, of Americans and, and how, that, uh, how that leads to prosperity and peace and, and, a, good, and a wonderful country that we enjoy. Um, you also wrote that uh, the framers believe that a healthy religious sphere, I'm quoting now, a healthy religious sphere is a necessary precondition for a system in which the power of the government can be effectively limited and bound to respect the widest personal freedoms of its citizens. Now, here at the Catholic Association, we'd love to hear you expound uh, some uh, a bit on this on this concept of how religious freedom ties into to a working liberal democracy. Right. So, um, basically, in my view, two traditions have come out of the Western. Uh, our Western heritage. One has come through England, uh, and it, I would characterize it today as sort of the Anglo-American political tradition of, of liberal democracy. And the other one really looks back to Rousseau and the French Revolution and is more totalitarian. Sometimes they're right wing, sometimes they're left wing, but they're far more. It's basically the, that the individual is subordinate to the collective. And uh, the Anglo-American tradition is that uh, it is the individual uh, that, that should be free and the collective should, that is the state, should be limited in its scope. And what the framers believed is that... Um, some source of control over human beings is necessary. And if it doesn't come from within an individual, it, will come from out, it has to come from outside. And they felt that uh, the British people, but also eventually the American people, had enough uh, of, a, of a religious outlook uh, and were people of generally of faith that they had the internal self-control and discipline and moral compass to control themselves. And it was that that allowed limited government. So when they talked about self-government, they weren't talking so much about the mechanics of voting and so forth. They were talking about literally the ability of individuals to govern themselves personally. And they felt that because there was a robust religious sphere, we could have limited government. And that's why they said, I think John Adams said, that it, that our system was meant only for religious people, couldn't really function without it, uh, because they were counting on the ability of individuals to control themselves and to have a, you know, a healthy sense of, of morality. Um, so that is why religion is the foundation of our system of government, a, a healthy free independent sphere of religious life uh, is the foundation on which our republic is based. Does that mean we are a theocracy? No, not at all. People are free as individuals to be religious or not be religious and then to determine what religion they adhere to uh, or no religion at all. But generally speaking, it is the vibrancy of that sphere that permits self-government and is indispensable to it. And, and along these lines, you dedicate an entire chapter to issues of religious freedom. And right. you say in this chapter that the problem today is not that religion is being forced on others. The problem is that secular values are being forced on people of faith. And you, you explain the significance of this in the field of education, which is of particular concern to us moms on this show. Um, and you say the decisive front in the fight for religious freedom is education. Um, for right. anyone who has a religious faith, by far the most important part of exercising it is passing that faith on to our children. And you say for the government to interfere with that is a monstrous invasion of religious liberty. Those are strong words. Do you want to explain what you mean by all that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we see today. You know, historically, education was supposed to be, you know, the idea of separation of church and state is a Christian idea. 
and started with Christ saying, render unto Caesar and then render unto God. And we followed that with Augustine, City of God, City of Man. And then through the Middle Ages, it was, a, uh, you know, the temporal sword and the sacred sword. So they were always understood to be two spheres. And the sphere of the parent and the church were supposed to do education. And the state, uh, it wasn't in the business of teaching people how to be uh, the best possible person. It was to restrain people from from doing evil, uh, but it wasn't a positive uh, educator of people. But in the in the 19th century, we decided to make education available to all, which was a good idea. And what's happened is that this that we've gone through three phases. One, the education that was provided in public schools was really essentially Christian. It was reflected the the. Uh, the traditions of the people, it was consistent with the Judeo-Christian tradition. And that lasted up till about 1960. So there was not that much tension between what went in the schoolroom and people's religious beliefs. Then in the 60s, the Supreme Court said, no, it has to, education has to be religiously neutral. And they stripped away, they, and, and they engaged in what I call secularization by subtraction. They stripped away vestiges of Christianity and, and, and the Judeo-Christian uh, moral system. But starting uh, during the Obama administration, they realized that, you know, you need explanation of why people have to do, th should do, act in a certain way. You know, it's like when you're growing up and you say to your parents, why? And they say, well, because I said so. But eventually they'll have to explain and any kind of moral system has to have an explanatory basis for it. And so what they've been trying to do once they did away with the Judeo-Christian tradition is trying to find a substitute. And now it's secularization by indoctrination, by addition. And so they're trying to inject into the school system teaching ideology, such as the um, CRT the critical race theory or transgenderism or other isms that explain why, uh, explain the values they're trying to indoctrinate people with. And I think that that is subversive of traditional religious belief. When you tell a kid that there, there aren't just two genders and they're free to be anything they want and no one gets to tell them what they want, what they're going to be, that is directly in conflict with traditional uh, religious belief. Certainly, it's not scientific to say there are more than two genders, but to say that no one has anything to say about it, not your parents or not nature or not anything else, is certainly contrary to traditional belief. And so we now have the public school system that is subverting the traditional beliefs of the people. And for families that try to raise their kids in a religious uh, tradition. And, uh, you know, this is, this is an attack on them. This is undercutting them. It subverts them. And that's intolerable under our constitution. On this, on this note, Mr. Barr, you make a point that I thought was so interesting in the book where you, you say that the fact that parents basically have to flee to private schools, you know, if they're fortunate enough to aff afford it, to be able to avoid all of this, uh, the injection of things like gender ideology in the public schools, um, and to be able to live out their most basic duty as parents, which is to, um, duty and right, which is to raise them according to the dictates of their faith, that that is a violation of religious liberty. And, you know, you talk extensively in the book about um, this infusion with progressivism uh, and, and attacks on, on conscience rights. Um, you have a great line where you say that progressives seem to take delight in compelling people to violate their consciences. And, um, you know, you talk about other religious liberty violations that really grew under the Obama administration, such as the relentless attacks on the little sisters of the poor, where do you see all of this headed and, and, you know, what do you say to Catholics who are concerned about um, the direction of this country and, and conscience rights and religious liberty? Yeah. I, you know, in a pluralistic society like ours, we, we, we have to come to it with a live and let live attitude. And, uh, 
you know, the left likes to pretend that they're tolerant, but it's just the opposite. They're not. Um, and, you know, as I said, when I was being confirmed, look, if um, gay rights is now uh, marriage rights are now the law of the land, but but you shouldn't insist on going into a parochial school uh, or teaching Catholic kids that it's the same as the same as other forms of marriage, you know, and uh, and uh, so as, as I as I said, they they seem to take delight in forcing themselves upon forcing their positions, forcing those who don't believe to bend the knee. And uh, uh, where I think this is going is is a lot of challenges in the Supreme Court, and I think. Uh, thanks to the Trump appointees, this Supreme Court is going to be very sympathetic to uh, protecting religious liberty. And I think ultimately we have to move, if we want to be a pluralistic society with a live or let live attitude, then uh, I think we have to move to vouchers. Uh, Money has to follow the, the kid in the educational system. And I point out that England, England and even France, the most one of the most secular countries in the world, religious parents can send kids to religious schools. At state and the state pays for all the education. So in in Britain, you know, you can go to a Muslim school, a Sikh school, a Catholic school, a Church of England school, and satisfy you know the requirement that your kid go to school. Uh, here in the United States, you can only send them to the public school unless you're willing to pay through the nose. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of a unique situation among the, among the Western countries. And I think we, ha- and, and that's odd for a country that was founded largely to protect religious liberty. Um, I'd love to shift to ask you some questions about some of the more personal aspects of your memoir. Uh, You Mm -hmm. dedicate the memoir to your wife, Christine. You mention in the book your succession of pledges that you gave to her each time you took on another high-profile job. You know, just wait till I finish law school while working at the CIA. Just wait, you know, until I make partner. Just wait until I finish this job as Attorney General for the first President Bush. And then you finally fulfill this promise to your family to enjoy private life, but then you're asked to serve a second time at a particularly challenging time for the country. And as a political spouse myself, I found it so touching to read about Christine's response when you were considering going back into government service. Um, and, and as you describe it in the book, you knew it would be like running across the river on the backs of alligators. <laughs> right. but, but your wife's response was so generous. And I just, I don't think I would have had the same response. Could you share with our listeners how the two of you made that decision to accept the attorney general job for a second time? Right. Well, we made the the decision as a family because I was very happy in the situation I was in and had no desire to go into government. I, you know, I had, I was on corporate boards and I still had control over my time and we could travel together and start doing the things we had wanted to do. One of my daughters had been very ill. And so we had put our life on hold for about five years and we were just sort of getting back into things. And, um, uh, this thing came up and we made a family decision. All three of my daughters are are lawyers. Uh, two of them were in the department and, and uh, two of my son-in-laws were in the department as prosecutors. So, uh, I knew it would affect their careers, so everyone had a say, and we sort of talked it through. And while they were originally, well, everyone in the family, you know, was resistant to the idea, as I was initially, I think they all came around to the view that uh, things were reaching a crisis in the administration, and someone had to run the department, and of the people who were I seem to be getting a lot of traction that others weren't and that that it made sense that I would be the one best situated to stabilize things there. And so uh, my wife, who 
was very, very upset at the way Kavanaugh had been treated. We had known Kavanaugh since he was, uh, you know, a newly minted lawyer. Um, and she really liked him and thought it was just savage what the left did to him. And that sort of got her to say, look, you know, there, someone has to stop these bullies and, and um, you know, get the department back on an even keel and you're probably the best to do it. So if, you, if this is something that you're asked to do and you feel you have to say yes, then I'll support that. So uh, well, the, the kids were the same. Well, the, the entire book is wonderful. It's a great gift. And I know Father's Day is coming up. I know my husband and my dad and my son who's in law school are all going to get a copy. Um, it's definitely a fascinating read for anyone who's interested in the law or politics. But it's also just so entertaining and just plain funny. Your anecdotes about things like the president's advice on not losing too much weight uh, yeah. for appearance on TV <laughs> yeah. or, or the story about who will eat the grenade. I laughed out, right. out loud at that one. Um, yeah. but, but we highly recommend your book and we're so grateful to you that you answered the call to serve the country a second time despite knowing how toxic things would be. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to you today. Well, Mr. Barr, we kept you longer than we had promised. And to our listeners, please, the book is called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. Thank you, Mr. Barr, for gracing our show with your presence. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Father. It's great to be back with you, Gracie, and with all those who listen to us every week. Yes, and all, all our listeners who are so fortunate as to have your Sunday homily for them already. It's always so inspiring and so good for us uh, to start thinking about the Sunday Gospel a couple days earlier. It makes a big difference in how I experience the Sunday Mass. And I like the format in a program dedicated to consequential conversations that we're able to recognize that the most important conversation we have on any given day is the conversation with God. And sometimes we can listen at Sunday Mass as if what's being read is about a place far, far away at a time long, long ago, mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than an actual event. One of the reasons why we stand, for example, at the Alleluia in preparation for the gospel is the Second Vatican Council describes for us, because Jesus Christ speaks live when the gospel is proclaimed at Mass. And so even when I'm proclaiming with a beautiful New England accent, <laughs> it is Jesus's words that he announced 2,000 years ago, whether from a boat or a mountainside or walking along the dusty paths of Palestine. We're listening to Jesus, and so he wants to engage us, not just in a dialogue of words or thoughts, but in a dialogue of persons, that we exchange persons with him in the prayer through sacred scripture. So it's, it's a great privilege for me to be able to to focus on that concrete gospel conversation each week and to have people who want to listen to it. Father, this Lent has been colored for us by the terrible catastrophe that's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, all of us, I think, are, are paying a lot of attention. We're, we're horrified. We're praying really hard for, for, for everyone involved. Um, even the young Russian soldiers who are sent out to fight uh, for no reason, you know, for no choice of their own. How can we use uh, the, the vision, this vision of suffering and, and our care, the care of our hearts for these people who are suffering to make our Lent a better Lent? So the first thing we always do as Catholics, the most important thing we do is to pray. Sometimes people can look at prayers and escape from hard work, for example. It's never meant to be that way with God. But throughout sacred scripture, there are so many examples of how God's people in desperation turned to him, and he rescued miraculously. And so we should never underestimate the power of our prayer, because nothing is impossible with God. So the first thing we need to be doing for that situation in the Ukraine is getting knee calluses, mm. just constantly mm -hmm. dropping down and beseeching the Lord as if our life 
depends on it because so many lives, in fact, do. And you never know when the same type of totalitarian craziness, which is happening now in the Ukraine, thanks to Vladimir Putin, for whose conversion we need to be praying with and system. But who knows what could ever happen to us here or anywhere else? We can't take for granted that we're always going to be able to live in safety. We need to be praying very seriously, not just for the sensation of hostility being waged in a unilateral direction, but also for real peace. And, you know, peace in the world is not just this lack of war. Peace is a series of qualities that really creates harmony and tranquility based on, as Pope Francis always liked to say, fraternity. So that's our first step to be praying like crazy for this. The second, throughout Lent, we fast as Catholics. You know, and sometimes we can fast in order to gain self-mastery so that if we're taming our lower appetites, we can hunger for what God hungers. A lot of the times it's, as Jesus says in the gospel, an opportunity for us to recognize those parts of our life that are not with him who is the bridegroom. And because the bridegroom has been taken away, we're fasting for that sphere of our life, likewise to be in communion. But as we see throughout sacred scripture, fasting was a particular type of bodily prayer for really important intentions. You see it with the prophets. You see it with Jesus out in the desert. You see it with Queen Esther before she was going to be asking King Ahasuerus to save the Jewish people there in Babylon. But fasting is an extraordinarily important way to pray. And when we fast, we're also in greater communion with many of the Ukrainians who are wondering where their next meal is going to come from and whether a truck at the risk of the driver's life is going to be arriving from Western Ukraine or Poland in order to bring supplies. And so second thing we could be doing, and then the third I'd say is during Lent, the church calls everybody to real almsgiving. And that summons to charity needs to be lived in a particularly generous way with those in the Ukraine. A little bit of our American dollars can go a long way there to be able to help, particularly with the refugee crisis, all those who have lost everything and had to have been in their homes, just to be able to have food, to be able to have shelter, to be able to have medicine, to be able to have money for transport, for all the rest of it. I mean, this is a time when we're just not giving something to some organization that might need it. Mm -hmm. But this is in response to a desperate crisis. And, you know, Jesus tells us at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, words that always bring tear to, tears to my eyes. He said, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, etc. And then they will say, Lord, when did we ever do any of this for you? And he said, as often as, I, as you have done it for the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done it for me. And if we're generous at this point, one time we're going to see Jesus smiling at us with a face that resembles the Ukrainian brothers and sisters whose uh, saddened faces we're seeing so often on the nightly news. Feels that way, right? Yeah. Like the devil has finally won the battle. Then we also see the face of Christ in so many people that run to, to fight him. As, as Christians, we know that, thanks be to God, the battle has been won on our side. <laughs> so the, the, the devil yet hasn't gotten the memo, and he's trying to increase his side, on his side, the number of lifetime casualties. But I, I agree with the essential point that when we are looking at the evil that's occurring over in the Ukraine, we could likewise look at Yemen, we can look at northern Nigeria. Ukraine isn't the only place where atrocities are occurring today, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But when we look at those situations, it is regular and common for us to be a little depressed mm -hmm. at the situation in the world. But we have so many more people doing good like the doctors you've just described, who at the risk of their life are going to save lives. And then so many other people who are really sacrificing for people. And, you know, the stories that I'm hearing from the priests with whom I'm in contact with in the Ukraine, they're describing all these acts of generosity, first from their fellow Ukrainians who, basically losing everything, are sacrificing for people who have lost more or need anything. But then throughout the entire world, they're kind of blown away by how much attention people are paying. There was one beautiful story. You know, I'm a missionary of mercy mm -hmm. uh, from the Jubilee of Mercy in 2016. Pope Francis gave about a thousand priests at that point special abilities in the sacrament of confession to heal the 
punishments due to special ecclesiastical grounds that only the Pope can have. But there are 27 missionaries of mercy in the Ukraine. And with a brother missionary of mercy from the Diocese of Spokane, Washington, we we, we wrote all 27 of these. And some of them were written back and we offered, like, is there any way we can help you beyond our prayers? One of these priests said to me, you know, Father, thank you so much for that offer of generosity, but right now we have seven days of bread, so we don't need anything. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that's for his whole parish, right? That we have we have a supply of seven days of bread, so if it were to get desperate, it's so um, important for us to know that we have some place to turn. But like seven days of bread, and they feel like they're the luckiest people around because, you know, not only has God given them that day their daily bread, but he's given it to them for a week. And so, like, we've got so much to learn about their faith, hope, and love that can strengthen us in our own circumstances where so often we're building grain bins in our pantries (laughs) for several weeks, whereas they feel surfeited with seven days of bread in the middle of a war zone. Touched me very much to see that type of simplicity as well as that type of faith. One thing that's been occurring to me very much watching what's happening in the Ukraine is that we're seeing the explosion of evil on this on this great state, on the world stage in a way that um, is so so obvious and, and, and so shocking, right? The, the terrible images and the blood and the loss of life. But... I've been thinking that we have that same kind of lack of peace right here at home in our own families, within our own hearts, in our own personal relations. And it's really all that's it's all the same thing. It's just that what we see in the Ukraine or in other terrible places where war has broken out is we see it on we see it writ larger. But it's really not any different from the way that we ourselves experience sin and the lack of peace. Am, am I being dramatic or is that a good way to think about it? There are multiple manifestations of the consequences of our sinful choices. We've got it at a daily level, and each of us has to look in the mirror honestly before God. And then we see it at this macroscopic, totally devastating level. That's where individual sinful choices ultimately lead. Mm -hmm. Like we recognize that all our sins ultimately led to the crucifixion of goodness himself on Calvary. And so as soon as we begin to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become one with evil, we see in the next generation after the separation of God that Cain kills Abel. Mm -hmm. And so that's where sin ultimately leads. It leads to an eclipse of God and it leads to dehumanization of others because we begin to get so focused on our own desires that we begin to use others as instruments. And that's the unfortunate background for the ugly and really um, awful images that we're seeing of so many who have suffered so much in the Ukraine. And that's one of the reasons why our prayer, our fasting, our almsgiving change the world through the communion of saints. And so on those times where we feel powerless to do anything, or we virtue signal to the president of the United States or other world leaders, this is what you should do. We need to stop and say, this is what I can do today because we've all got some power in our hands because the almighty God has made our prayer, our fasting and our almsgiving um, far more capable than we would be able to do just by ourselves. So our own personal conversion could be something that that we can work on during Lent uh, as a way of lessening the amount of evil in the world and, and helping our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Is that true? Yeah, that's always been the church's teaching that both sin has a massive ripple effect, mm-hmm. but also goodness through the communion of saints has a big um, impact. Who knows what our choices today for the good are able going to be able to do later. They can save lives, but they can also start this um, chain of goodness. Like when we look at how many saints have come out of war situations, um, it's, 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 it's a countless litany. Mm-hmm. Mother Teresa being born when she was in that culture, John Paul II being born and having grown up both under Nazism and communism and w- what that forged. God's, God wants to be responding to the evil and the destruction of Ukraine and what it means for the world by raising up many, many saintly sons and daughters. And that happens one good yes to God at a time. 
Father, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask for a good explanation about um, on March 28th, Pope Francis is going to consecrate Russia and the Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. I was under the impression that this had already been done. It has to do with Our Lady of Fatima and the way that she asked for this consecration, especially of Russia. Um, what's going to happen on March 28th and how should we participate and what, what's, the, what's the significance of this? I think the actual date, Gracie, is March 25th on the Annunciation. At least oh, that's yes, what I'm I saw. Sorry. You're right, yeah, Father. That's, that's sorry, what Father. I saw. So it's it's tied into the Annunciation, right, where the Archangel Gabriel would have come to Mary and proposed to her on behalf of all of heaven for the human race to say yes to God's plan. And so it's a beautiful day to do the consecration of Our Lady. What we're really talking about is a re-consecration to Our Lady, because in 1917, our, Our Lady, after giving the young shepherd children a vision of hell, a vision of all the suffering and blood of the world due to atheistic communism, and then the um, sufferings of the church, including a bishop in white being shot, after all of that, she said the remedy would be consecration to her Immaculate Heart. And so Pope Pius XII led the church in a consecration in 1942. Um, during the Second Vatican Council, there was another consecration. In 1984, John Paul II, with the bishops around the world, including one he sent into a phone booth inside the Kremlin, consecrated um, Russia and all countries in need to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And Sister uh, Lucy, one of the three Fatima seers, said that John Paul II did it precisely as she wanted. Pope Francis, responding to appeals across the world, is going to be renewing that consecration in the Vatican, and he sent his papal almsgiver, um, Cardinal Kriuzek, is his name Conrad, Don Corrado we call him, to Fatima to do it simultaneously. So why do we do that? Because a heart that's united to God like Mary's is more powerful than all the bombs and the missiles in the world combined. And so Pope Francis is trying to focus the attention of the entire praying world on openness to God's grace and our um, need to say yes to God, to be more powerful than those who are saying no to God and no to their brothers in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And there will be a novena, I think, that we can all join in with, right? Uh, starting maybe tomorrow, because that would be nine well, days. The, the the Greek Catholic Archbishop uh, there in Kiev has asked everybody to begin with a novena prior to that consecration. And so I think both opportunities, the novena as well as joining in that consecration, are really beautiful ways for us to pray open to what God himself can do, because nothing is impossible for him. And I just urge, at the same time that we're trying to consecrate Russia and Ukraine, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that each of us do the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Paul II, each morning, would re-consecrate himself to Our Lady with a beautiful prayer, and maybe we can finish this segment where I'll give you what he prayed, and then I'll translate it. He got his motto from it. Please, He said, totus, totus tuus ego sum, I am all yours, Mary, et tota mea tua sunt, and all the things that I have belong to you. A chipiote in mea omnia. I receive you into the totality of all that I am and have. Prebe mihi cortuum, O Maria. Give me your heart, O Mary. And so I just urge you, in those words, you can find it easily. Just totus tuus prayer, John Paul II on Google, you'd be able to get those prayers, which he originally took from St. Louis Marie Guignon de Montfort, so that you can personally consecrate yourself at the same time Pope Francis is going to be consecrating Russia and the Ukraine to Mary's all-powerful, pure, immaculate heart. Oh Well, thank you, Father, for that wonderful advice, and thank you for joining us every week with your homily. And to our listeners, you can always find Father Roger's homilies at catholicpreaching.org. A blessed Lent, Gracie, to you and to all those listening to us. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. 
Happy Easter, everyone. This is Father Roger Landry. It's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter together into dialogue with the risen Lord Jesus as we begin this Easter season. After Jesus' resurrection, we know he engaged in various consequential conversations with his disciples, with Mary Magdalene in the garden, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, with the ten apostles in the upper room, with doubting Thomas, with St. Peter at the Sea of Galilee, with about 500 disciples as he prepared to ascend to his Father's right side. But as we see in the Gospel passages chosen for the Easter Vigil and for Easter Sunday morning, the emphasis is mainly on the fact of Jesus' resurrection, what the reality says to us, and what we say to ourselves, God, and others as a result. St. Luke's account that we hear at the Easter Vigil, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James head to the tomb at daybreak to anoint Jesus' body with spices. But they find the stone rolled away and two angels in the tomb telling them that the living one is not among the dead, but has been raised on the third day just as he promised. They then ran to announce this fact to the eleven apostles who didn't believe them. St. John's version for Easter morning, a confused Mary Magdalene, after seeing the stone rolled away, told Saints Peter and John, they've taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. The apostles ran to the tomb, entered it, saw the barrel cloths and head covering. St. John tells us he saw and believed. Jesus didn't meet them, in other words, first and say, surprise. He wanted them to have to confront the fact of his resurrection. His fulfillment of the words he had told them on at least three occasions, that he would be betrayed, crucified, and raised on the third day. We know that even when they would see him for the first time, they would nevertheless doubt. Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener. The apostles thought he was a ghost. The mind-blowing reality of his being alive 40 hours after his brutal crucifixion was something they needed time to digest. And he gave them that time to ponder his words and engage the possibility that what he had said, what the angels in the tomb had said, what the women running from the tomb had said, and for Thomas, what the other apostles had said, was all true. The risen Lord Jesus wants to have a conversation with us like he did with Mary Magdalene, calling us by name, with the disciples to Emmaus, making our hearts burn and helping us to recognize him in the Eucharist, with the apostles confirming us in the gift of divine mercy, as we'll speak about next Sunday, with the great multitude, as he gave the commission to go to the whole world, proclaiming the gospel to everyone, baptizing in the name of the Trinity, teaching them to carry out everything Jesus commanded, and knowing that the risen Lord Jesus is with us always until the end of time. But Jesus also wants us to confront the fact of his resurrection and draw its conclusions in our life. The resurrection is the definitive confirmation of everything Jesus said and did, so it must be consequential. That's why at both the Easter Vigil and Easter Sunday morning Mass, the Church has us renew our baptismal vows. Reflecting on the fact of Jesus' resurrection, the Church asks us whether we reject Satan, his evil works and empty promises, whether we believe in God the Father, God the Son, risen from the dead, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church God founded, the communion of saints in this world and in heaven, the forgiveness of sins made possible by Jesus' passion, the resurrection of the body to share in Jesus' glorified body, in the eternal life that Jesus has gone to prepare for us in the Father's house. The resurrection of Jesus is a summons for us to live with him a new life, to share in his triumph over the devil, the sin to which the devil tempts us, and the eternal death that he desires for us, as well as to live by faith, thanks to God's mercy, a Trinitarian life in the church together with the saints until the time we share fully in Christ's resurrection. In my column for the Easter edition of the National Catholic Register, I wrote about what it must have been like for Jesus' first disciple to experience the reality of his rising from the dead, his appearances to them, his challenging them toward faith, and his helping them to live it boldly. Meeting the risen Lord Jesus would have changed everything, their griefs, fears, confusion, and so many what-ifs. Jesus' res resurrection spiritually raised them from the dead. What would happen if we were to ponder each day Mary Magdalene bursting into where we are to exclaim, I have seen the Lord? If it happened first thing in the morning, wouldn't it change the alacrity with which we got out of bed? If we were suffering a headache or the effects of injury, wouldn't this greatest news ever told relativize our pain? If she barged into our workplace or our kitchen or our traffic jams, wouldn't it change how we labor, eat, handle daily contradictions and difficult people, as well as everything else? The fact of the resurrection is meant to change our life just as much as it changed the lives of the first disciples. The risen Lord Jesus is still risen, still with us until the end of time, and wants to share each day with us full time. 
recognizing that the risen Lord Jesus is with us makes it much simpler to lift up our hearts to what he desires, to elevate our thoughts to what God cares about, to seek his kingdom rather than to grasp onto the things of this world. As we confront, for example, the evil we're witnessing in Ukraine, not to mention the various other challenges of our time in history, or the routine, personal, psychological, spiritual, familial, work-related, economic, and other issues that people face in every age. Remembering the reality of the resurrection keeps things in perspective and reminds us that, the, that evil does not have the last word. The fact that the risen Christ remains with us doesn't mean that after we see the bombing of the Ukrainian apartment complexes, shelters, train stations, and schools sheltering hundreds will start humming, Jesus Christ is risen today. But it does mean that their sad and avoidable deaths are not the end. While the fact of the resurrection and Jesus' risen presence do not take away the pain or the horror of atrocities, it contextualizes them in a much deeper reality full of hope. And if that's what it can do for industrial-scale death and destruction, what can it also do to help us with the other challenges, hardships, and horrors we face? So let's ask, how do we buttress our living of the fact of the resurrection and our call to communion full-time with the risen Lord Jesus? Let me suggest a few ways. The first is in prayer, where we spend time with the risen Lord Jesus, in which we strive to raise our thoughts to His. The second is through cooperation with the Holy Spirit, who not only raised Jesus from the dead, but leads us to newness of life. This is the newness the apostles experienced on Pentecost, which made them capable in word and witness to convey the truth of the Lord's resurrection. And the Holy Spirit wishes to do the same moral resurrection in you and me. Third is in the sacrament of confession. Jesus founded this privileged encounter on Easter Sunday night to communicate, I believe, that every reconciliation is a resurrection. As God the Father is able to say to us with the words of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, my son was dead and has come back to life again. Fourth is growing close to Our Lady, who could never forget the fact that her son, risen from the dead, was present. She could never lose the joy that that reality communicated. We invoke her throughout the Easter season by the Regina Chaley, in which we, pondering her joy at her son's triumph, ask God the Father to grant us the same everlasting joy. The fifth is loving people by spreading the faith and doing works of charity. Paying the risen Christ gifts forward is a far greater way to appreciate them. The sixth is celebrating for no reason other than for the best reason of all, Jesus' resurrection. Throughout the 50 days of Easter, we should celebrate more than we would a birthday, a Super Bowl championship, even a Nobel Prize, so that the grace of supernatural joy can build on natural joys. And the last and most important is the Mass. I've had the privilege about 15 times to celebrate Mass inside the tomb of Christ in Jerusalem from which Jesus rose from the dead. Each time I do, I'm conscious that I'm returning the risen body of the Lord Jesus back to the empty tomb. That's not incredible enough. I marvel and try to help others to marvel that then I put the same risen Lord Jesus into communicants. He who promised that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will live forever makes a down payment on that promise by allowing us to enter into communion with him here and now risen from the dead at Mass. So as we prepare for Easter Mass, let us ask the risen Lord Jesus to strengthen us in our faith in the fact of his having risen from the dead, in the truth of his presence with us, so that we may live always as the disciples of the one who has conquered the world and spread like his first followers the great news of the resurrection and of Jesus' summons to live with him now and forever the newness of risen life. Happy Easter, and God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 